Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. This is Squirrel here, and in fact, Jeffrey's going to join us in a moment, but this is a slightly unusual episode because we recorded this episode last week, and after we finished editing, we discovered it was so there was so much material that we would actually split it into two. So Jeffrey's going to pick up in a moment, and going, we're going to talk about three more flags that tell you when your Agile project is not really Agile. This is from the Defense Innovation Board, links in the show notes as always, and what they say in their opening paragraph of their Detecting Agile BS document is uh, the the purpose of this document is to provide guidance on how to detect software projects that are really using Agile development versus those that are simply waterfall or spiral development in Agile clothing, Agile Scrum Fall. So we're going to be talking about three more flags that can tell you when you're in that situation. And of course, a rubber chicken. Yeah, let's go. Let's go back to number three. This one is meeting requirements. So this is not requirements of meetings, but rather meeting requirements is treated as more important than getting something useful into the field as quickly as possible. Right. So this is saying, well, we need it to be done. We need it to check all the boxes, everything we laid out. And uh, it doesn't matter how much longer it takes. What matters is, did we check all the boxes? And, and if you remember a book like Catch-22 or anything that's uh, describing a kind of stereotypical military environment, you can see that sort of meeting requirements was everything. I remember there being a character in Catch-22 who only wanted to march the, the people who was commanding up and down the field. Didn't matter about you know, shooting any of the enemy or anything. It was <laughs> march up and down the field really well. That was what they wanted to do. So that's an example of meeting the requirements rather than getting into the field and doing something useful. So I imagine that's a common stumbling block, especially in this environment. I do think there can be a risk where people, once they've heard it from a, a user and they have that empathy of the user, a lot of times they can fall into the idea of saying, oh, look, they said they want this. We have to get that done. And they may lose sight of the value of a partially complete software early feedback. I think well-intentioned people can end up uh, suffering the same kind of problem where it's they just feel like it's really important to get everything done. Like it's clearly won't be useful to them unless we get it's all finished. <laughs> yep. They kind of go native a bit and so that's something to watch out for because you don't want them to to become frozen with the information they got from having visited a particular user on a particular day. You want to get the feedback Right. So you might ask yourself on your project, when's the last time someone said, you know, well, how little could we do before we get feedback? Or, you know, what's the scope we could cut to release early? Yep. Could we get this out on Monday and not on Friday? I mean, I know our sprint ends on Friday, but how about if we got it out on Monday? That would be a great question. That would be a good sign. And if you're not hearing that, if you're not hearing anything that sounds like that, that's probably a danger signal. All right. I want to take us to uh, flag number four. Okay. Stakeholders, development test ops, security, contracting, contractors, end users, etc. I'm not actually sure I know who those all, all those are, are acting more or less autonomously. E.g., it's not my job. <laughs> I really like this one. And actually, I got to say, the, the first thing I like about it is that it does acknowledge all these different people as stakeholders in the project, as opposed to merely functionaries or, or workers or order takers. Um, so, so I actually really like that. But then uh, having done that and said, look, yep, it, it kind of promotes them, elevates them to the level of people with independent wills and minds, their stakeholders, but then says, oh, but that can go wrong. <laughs> they they can go out and and I'll be working independently in a bad sense. And I think you and I have just talked quite a bit recently about the value of being aligned 
and coordinated. So I think that's what we mean here. Working autonomously, generally speaking, is good, but the, the problem here is being autonomous, but without that alignment and coordination that makes the effort meaningful. And I've had a great opportunity just in the past week to work with a couple companies that have very different um, levels of development on this, levels of uh, adoption. Uh, I have one where they're trying to build a very complex um, product and they need a whole lot of folks to be very closely coordinated and they don't even have a plan up on the wall where everybody can see where everyone else is. So there's a huge lack of coordination. And then I talked to another company, literally in the same week, who uh, I've never seen anyone who communicates as much as they do. And, and everyone says, oh yeah, and then we have this really useful meeting where we meet with those folks and we find out what they're doing. And then we have another one where we cycle through different ones, but uh, over the course of a month, we see everybody else who does this other thing that we are supposed to integrate with. And I said, gee, you seem to have a lot of meetings. And they said, yeah, but they're so useful which is not the kind of thing you normally hear from developers, <laughs> right? That's not very common, but it, it means that they can deliver a very, very complex product, in their case, to uh, massive uh, government entities and huge retail deployments with uh, millions and millions of pounds going through their system every day. And they can deliver that in like 20 days. It's amazing what they've produced. We've not talked about that environment before, but one thing that strikes me is that I've often observed that we can get remarkable things done when we have very good coordination and collaboration across skill boundaries. So when when you get someone with the ops knowledge and development knowledge and th at the same time an end user all working together, for example, to come up with, say, well, what, what would be possible here in, in iterating? They can cover a lot of ground quickly. It's because you're you're bringing people from different backgrounds and different types of knowledge that uh, unlock that sort of capability. Exactly, and you can unlock um, some very very surprising opportunities. For example, one of my clients, um, I was referring to them before. They they deliver a piece of hardware to to India, and their uh, key hardware person quit all of a sudden one day, and uh, this developer who literally was just a software developer never. Maybe he'd taken a physics course. I'm not sure. But he said, gee, I wonder, you know, there's these soldering irons over here. I don't know which end to pick up, but, you know, if I turn it on, I'll find out. <laughs> and he burnt himself a few times. And I'm sure he burnt out a few boards and so on. But he sat down with the hardware and actually got going with it. And, of course, now he's the linchpin between the software and the hardware people. He's the one who can understand both languages. All right. So we keep giving examples of people doing it well. But, you know, when you don't have this kind of behavior, it's a flag that you know, maybe you're not really agile. And I think we're down to number six of six then. This one's a bit of a mouthful, uh, at least to, to, to lead off. Do you want to try it or should I? I'll give it a shot. Um, okay. It's the phrase DevSecOps culture. And I want to say I do approve of people who've been going from saying DevOps to and bringing InfoSecurity into it and making it DevSecOps. But it, um, it doesn't exactly flow off the tongue for me yet anyway. No, not me either. Now it says a DevSecOps culture is lacking if manual processes are tolerated when such processes can and should be automated. I, I do like the fact that they say when they should be because they shouldn't always be, but when they can and should be automated, it gives examples, automated testing, continuous integration, continuous delivery. Yep. Well, Jeffrey, you run the uh, KitCon conference every year, so uh, that sounds like something that uh, you would care a lot about. Automated testing, continuous integration. And of course, you and I met at KitCon London in 2006. So this is something that you and I have, have shared over uh, many years. And the idea that uh, taking things that can and should be automated, we're saying that not everything 
you know, should be automated or can be automated on both the testing side. And I'm thinking here of people like Michael Bolton making the good point about the difference between real human-inspired testing and uh, checking. Uh, you know, we really want to make sure all of our checks are automated, but there may be some things that uh, that we don't automate. On the hand, we can usually automate a lot more than we think. And this is a question of uh, doing it thoughtfully. And I, one of our favorite examples of that is uh, doing automation right, which in sometimes means doing it later, is from uh, James Shore uh, and his uh, rubber chicken. Can you want to tie, tie that in for us? I sure do, because um, it's one of my favorite things. I've never actually done it, but it's it's a very stimulating idea, and it's, it's uh, made me think hard about exactly how you use continuous integration. James Shore, in, in the early days of continuous integration, when KitCon was really kind of a um, uh, an opportunity for different continuous integration tools to, to battle it out, and we'd have the battle of the tools. Um, I think the, the battle's mostly been won these days. But in, the, in those days, it was a big debate about which one you should use. And his argument was that you should use the rubber chicken. And the rubber chicken consists of a rubber chicken or anything else that's <laughs> silly, a dog toy, you know, anything that you can find. And you stick it on your computer, a disused computer, someone, something that's not one that's not anybody's particular machine. And if you are going to release, you walk over, you pick up the rubber chicken. And the point is there's only one of them because you definitely don't want to have two rubber chickens in your workplace. So you have only one. It's a token that proves that you, you are the one who is doing the releasing. And you run all the tests on that computer. And when all the tests pass and you watch them and you see them complete and they're all green, then you push the release button. So there's some automation there of running the tests and doing the releasing, but there's a human in the loop who is doing the process. And of course, the point is that you get into the habit of making sure that, first of all, you integrate everything all together. There's no branching. There's no complex uh, uh, manipulation of the release process. Rubber chicken, release. It's very simple. And you get into the habit of making sure that a human being is checking all the tests run. I, I bet if you do that, although I never have, I bet if you do that, you get very few flickering tests, you know, the kind that kind of <laughs> pass on Thursdays, but not on Fridays, because it would drive that human being bananas. And I guarantee you're going to have a fast test suite, because that person doesn't want to sit there watching the tests for very long. And bringing up the rubber chicken, uh, which I think he wrote about originally in something like 2005, uh, may seem really um, anachronistic at this point. But I, I think the, the point here is that that was really talking about the discipline and taking ownership of what you were doing. He definitely was uh, very heavily doing automated testing. And what he was arguing against was people who left the build system uh, that ran automatically and didn't take ownership for those results. And would even let tests fail and would release when the tests were read and ignore the results and so on. You can't ignore it if you're sat there with the chicken in your hand. Right. And so it, it was trying to solve the, the problem. If we take it back to this um, number six here, which is say, you know, you're lacking if manual processes are tolerated. And the manual process that was he was not tolerating was people having to figure out merge conflicts or figure out, you know, who was it who broke the build because people had lost track because of, you know, people had checked in code and walking off to lunch and these long running builds that were running without ownership, people had really lost sense of what was happening. And I think therefore they're saying like we we should be really um vigilant about how we use human time and part of that is that is the discipline for people and part of that is automating things um we could say the sort of the the next evolution of uh this sort of approach might have been something like the uh, uh continuous deployment stuff at im view where after every check-in if the test failed they would just revert the commit automatically <laughs> 
And in that case, you are doing that uh, uh, same goal of, of making sure that we're being very careful with how we spend human time and using automation to help uh, accelerate that and make sure we're getting the most out of, of, the, of people's times. Absolutely. Well, we'll have a link in the show notes to both. Uh, James Shore, Continuous Integration on a Dollar a Day, which is rubber, his rubber chicken discussion, and then the, the seminal comments about uh, IMVU doing the impossible 50 times a day where they release and then automatically unrelease if uh, <laughs> user metrics don't show what they expect. That's right. So those are two ends of the spectrum of the, the view on uh, manual processes and when and you can and they can and should be automated. But we got all that from flag number six. I think you could certainly check whether or not you are tolerating manual processes that you could automate. Yep. All right. Great. Well, it looks like we have a good set of uh, six flags here. So six things that our listeners can actually go and try out. We'd love to hear from them about uh, whether you have any of these uh, anti-patterns, whether you're doing anything about it, whether you're stuck trying to fix them. That would sure be interesting. But I think, Jeffrey, it's fair to say we, we agree with all six of these. Is that right? I wasn't sure whether we'd come to that conclusion. <laughs> yeah, I think we do. I think we, we like these. There's other ways I'm sure that people can end up not being agile, uh, fall into agile scrum fall. <laughs> this is not an exhaustive list, but it's six, six good places to start. Yep, absolutely. Excellent. Well, we'd love to hear from you. As I said, if you've tried any of these, if you're trying out these uh, diagnostics and if they're working or not, or if you have any similar stories, or if you want to disagree with us, uh, as normal, you can get in touch with us via troubleshootingagile.com, which has all the links for Twitter and email and all the other wonderful ways to get in touch. We'd really appreciate it if you'd click the subscribe button. We're up over a consistent 400 or more listeners every week, and we'd love to increase that. And we'd love to keep talking to you about troubleshooting agile which I think we'll do next time. All right. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Squirrel.